Anybody watch Peaky Blinders? Few of the few of us, yeah. Um, Peaky Blinders is a Netflix series. Uh, I think they're in, I think they finished the third season. Um, it uh, takes place in post World War One Birmingham, England, and it's about a, a gang and and uh, all the dynamics of. Uh, everything from like PTSD of World War One vets to just you know gangster stuff, and but what what I love about the series is they do an amazing job of picking music. They just do an amazing job of picking um, modern music that, and then they slot it into this time period of over like a hundred years ago, and somehow it all works. And and the theme song that was the opening credits. Uh, the theme song that they use every single season is the song "Red Right Hand" by a guy named Nick Cave and the Bad Seas. Nick Cave is a um, an alternative. I guess you might call him an alternative songwriter. Um, and "Red Right Hand" is this mysterious story of this figure, um, and he's kind of a I don't know, kind of a, a bad dude, if you, if you would. And and um, he's taken the imagery of the right hand of God. It's a, it's a Bible image that, that, that comes out from the Hebrew. And uh, Nick Cave actually just does that a lot. He takes biblical imagery and he plays with it in some very confrontational and thought-provoking ways. Um, and the right hand of God, uh, just to start here, the right hand of God in the Bible is, is associated with like God's strength, right? So like right off the bat, like I tell you, I'm left-handed. So I'm already kind of like, all right, God, like, why are you so prejudiced? Why, why you don't like left people? Well, left-handed people, I don't know. But the right hand of God is associated with God's strength. It's associated with uh, the avenging part of God. It's associated with the, the, the punishing part of God. It's the, it's the, the if you will, like um, the, the side of God that like breaks down kingdoms. It's the side of God, the right hand of God goes out with God's people when they're going to battle. It is associated with strength, with punishment even, with uh, force. And we, we start that way today because uh, when we start talking about the idea of justice for a lot of us, especially depending on what faith tribe you grew up in, the right hand of God is also associated with justice. When you do something wrong, when people do something wrong, we want the right hand of God, the strong right hand of God to come in and to use some more biblical language, smite thine enemies who always seem to line up with our enemies. I don't know. It's kind of crazy how that happens. And so uh, when we start talking about justice, like we instantly start talking about the right hand of God, the punishing hand of God. And, and um, we're going to explore the concept of justice today. And uh, this is the first full Sunday of Lent. Uh, Lent started last Wednesday with Ash Wednesday. And the first Sunday of Lent, we're going to be doing a series from now until Easter. That's the season of Lent. From now until Easter, um, we're just calling it Jesus Wept. And we're talking about things that we believe break God's heart. And so we're talking about sin and we're talking about what sin does. And uh, again, depending on how you grew up and, and if you've been a part of a faith tribe before, you might be used to talking about sin or thinking about sin in very personal terms. Like, what have, what have I done wrong today? What have you done wrong today? And that is an extremely critical central part of the Bible. How do we, um, how do we kind of miss the mark with God? How do we, how do we live our lives in such, in such ways that are counter to God's purposes and his ways? But there's a whole other part 
of sin that in our country, in our culture, North American culture, that we do not talk about, but it is thoroughly biblical. And that is the idea of corporate sin. The idea that in the Bible, it is not enough for me to say, well, I didn't do that thing, so I'm okay, even if somebody else did. Uh, in the Bible, when you start to look at the way God works with his people, there is a sense of, listen, if somebody has done this thing, then in a way, like you all are responsible. And so we're going to take a look at issues over the next few weeks that when we, we, we might land on an issue and you're like, that's not my problem. I'm not, I don't want to struggle with this thing. But what I want to invite you into is that for the next five, six weeks, consider the fact that even if you don't have a problem with it, that God still looks at his people and says, well, if it's happening and you're a part of my people, then guess what? Oh, you got a problem, right? I, I was thinking about how to, how to think about this in my life. And, and I've got two kids. Uh, my, my daughter is away at college and uh, my son is, is still at home. If, if we were traveling, if my wife and I were traveling and, and my two kids were at home for the weekend and say my daughter said, hey, uh, let's have a party. And she decided to just like call up a bunch of people and have a party. And we came home and maybe something was broken or, or something was just really trashed, right? Like I would look at my daughter and I go, okay, like what were you thinking? But I would also look at my son because there's a sense of like, listen, you were in the house. Did not someone, did not you go like, uh, this is, we're going to get in trouble if we do this. <laughs> this is not a good idea. And, and some of the time, sometimes we use a concept in our family, uh, the, and I would just portray it this way, that I would look at my kids and, and if they did this, and even if one was more responsible than the other, there would still be the sense of like, but listen guys, we are not this type of people. Like we're not this type of family. Even if just one of them did something, there's a collective sense of who we are as the case family. And that's the way I believe God looks at his people. The Bible, the central metaphor for God in the Bible is really father. And the Bible says we are all one family. We're just brothers and sisters. And so sometimes even though we may not have a, a, a problem with a certain way of life or a certain commandment of God, if somebody does, I believe God looks at us and goes, but we're not that type of people. So if it's happening, we've all got a problem and we all have to name it as a family, talk about it and then figure out a way to turn from it. That's the repenting part. So we're gonna talk about things uh, like racism and we're gonna talk about things like uh, um, sort of how we have harmed the environment. We're gonna talk about things like isolation, we're talking about things like idolatry. And today we're going to talk about this thing called justice or really the lack thereof of injustice. And again, I'm going to ask you for an open heart and an open mind and a willingness to say, listen, uh, to, a, to a certain degree, it doesn't matter what I think about a certain issue. What matters is what the Bible says about it. And if we're all part of God's people, again, this is not to shame anybody, but we have to name the things that are kind of holding us back. So we're going to just jump in. I'm going to start by just looking. We're just going to start with a definition of justice. And I just want to take it through the Bible and just look at what God says about it 
and what we're supposed to do about it. And so to start very simply, if you looked up in the dictionary, justice would have some kind of basic definition of, listen, just upholding fair and right behavior. Justice is simply like fairness and right behavior. And, and in our country, you know, uh, anybody, what's the, what's the image of justice? It's a statue, statue with the scales blindfolded, right? Because part of, being, part of justice is impartiality. That is like literally wound into the definition of justice. It can't be justice if it's not impartial, right? If it's biased, it's not just. So starting right there, like that is in no way contradictory to anything in uh, the Bible. And so we would start like, listen, the Bible's right there with us. Fair and right behavior and impartial justice for everyone. This is uh, one of my Bibles. Um, it's called The Message. Um, this is actually a paraphrase of the Bible. I, I, had, I got this, I believe, in uh, right around 2000, 2001. And uh, it's a paraphrase of the Bible by a guy named Eugene Peterson. And it came out in the very late 90s, uh, right around the turn of the century. And it's, a, it's an amazing paraphrase of the Bible. If, if you're looking for a very easy to read uh, version of the Bible, it's pretty faithful to the text. And it's so easy to read, and it just brings things out. I have a lot of Bibles. Um, I like to read in different translations just to see the way they, uh, the way they deal with the, the Hebrew and the Greek. And um, when I got the message, that, that copy of it, and uh, somewhere along the line, I decided, listen, I, I'm I need to read through the Bible the whole way. Like, I've just never sat down and read the whole Bible, so I just jumped in, and I went from Genesis to Revelation, and, which is the wrong way to read through the Bible. I'll just tell you that right now. If you want to read through the Bible uh, the whole way, come to me, ask me, do not do it from Genesis to Revelation. You just don't get a flavor of really the central message, but that's the way I did it. Um, I don't know how you grew up, if you grew up with the Bible at all. Um, you know, I grew up in church mostly, and then left for a while, but there, people use different metaphors for this thing. Um, I was told, you know, this is God's love letter to you. Anybody ever heard that? That the Bible is God's love letter to you. And I'm like, have you read this thing? Like, <laughs> there was like decidedly not love letter material in here. And then um, I was also told, I, was, uh, I heard this acronym, uh, Bible, B-I-B-L-E, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. Anybody ever heard that one? All right. Um, God's Manual for Living, God's Instruction Book. You know, anybody, any, am I missing any? Are there any, what? Blueprint for Life, yes. Guide. Rule and Guide, okay. But all good stuff. I will tell you that uh, I thought all that was true and good. And, and furthermore, uh, when I started reading the Bible through the first time, I, I was convinced that in all of that was also this message of like the Bible is, is, is how it's going to help me know how to be saved and how to be a good person. I mean, it's like God wants me to go to heaven. So the Bible is going to be a great tool for me, figuring out how to live a good life and how to be free. And, and all of those things, uh, uh, that, that freedom is there. But I got to tell you, when I read the Bible, when I actually read the text, I really came away with like all of those people that made up those metaphors. I was like, I wonder if they've ever actually read this thing. <laughs> I really did. 
Yes, I mean, there are guidelines in there. Yes, there are loving parts of it. But probably the, probably the thing that struck me the most was that um, God, I knew, wanted me to live a good life and he wanted me to know Jesus and he wanted me to be saved. But when you actually read the text of this thing, or at least when I did, I actually found out that God actually wants to talk a lot about poor people. And he wants to talk an awful lot about how we treat the marginalized and the fringe people and the hurting people in our world. Much more than he wanted to talk about, hold on, how I get to heaven. That rocked my world. So much so that like I remember when my trajectory of my faith took, took a, a decided turn. Uh, again, I was just reading through the text from beginning to end and somewhere probably around 2002, I got to Isaiah. It took me a long time, uh, but I got to Isaiah and I got to Isaiah 58. And again, I'm coming at this thing like thinking, oh, the Bible's all about my relationship with Jesus. But, but by Isaiah, I'm like, whoa, there's a lot more at stake. And my life took a trajectory turn. At Isaiah 58, I'll show you. I took a picture of, of Isaiah 58 in this, in the message. You see, I write in my Bible. So you see the exclamation point out to the side? I mean, like that was real time. I was like, what the, like. So I'm going to read Isaiah 58 to you from the message translation. And uh, keep in mind that I was a worship leader. Uh, so I was in charge of like, you know, leading songs and having people sing and, and having people do things on Sunday. And, and now I'm a preacher and that's a lot of Sunday stuff. And Isaiah 58 sort of threw a big monkey wrench into my idea of like what life looked like in terms of Sunday versus Monday through Saturday. So Isaiah 58, shout, God says. Shout, a full-throated shout, hold nothing back, a trumpet blast shout. Tell my people what's wrong with their lives. Face my family, Jacob, with their sins. They're busy, busy, busy at worship. And they love studying all about me. I underlined that in my Bible because that was me. Busy, busy at worship and love studying about God. To all appearances, they're a nation of right living people, law abiding, God honoring. And they ask me, God, what's the right thing to do? And they love having me on their side, but they also complain. Why do we fast and you don't look our way, God? Why do we humble ourselves and you don't even notice? And then the way you, Peterson puts it, there's, God says, well, here's why. Which if, you're, if you have any familiarity with God, you better be like, oh gosh, oh no, here it comes. And the bottom line on your fast days is profit. You drive your employees much too hard. You fast, but at the same time you bicker and fight. You fast, but you swing a mean fist. The kind of fasting you do won't get your prayers off the ground. Do you think this is the kind of fast I'm after, God says? To put on a pious long face and parade around solemnly in black. Do you call that fasting, a fast day that I, God, would like? And then this is the part with the exclamation point. This is the kind of fast day I'm after. To break the chains of injustice. To get rid of exploitation in the workplace. To free the oppressed. To cancel debts. What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, being available to your own family. And I was like, oh, oh my. So when I started reading this text, 
I realized that God had a agenda, uh, what I would call right now just a justice agenda that I had never seen before. So um, to go back to our definition of justice, we said it's of upholding fair and right behavior. It's uh, impartial. Well, to be really basic, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, the word for, for justice is literally the word that just means making right judgments. That's the word for justice, mishpah. Make right judgments. And in the Old Testament, guess what? Everybody's called to make right judgments. They got kings in the Old Testament. The kings are called to pray for and make right judgments. The priests, the people who are the spiritual leaders, they're called to make right judgments. But guess what? The Ten Commandments and everything else says, God, God says, listen, if you're a person of faith, you need to make right judgments too. You need to be a people of justice. And it's just all laced through the Old Testament. But there's a group of people in the Old Testament there's a group of people inside God's people who are particularly charged with talking about, recognizing, and provoking issues of justice. And it's a group of people called the prophets. Have you ever heard of the prophets, right? Like, so in my Bible, this is my normal Bible, um, common English translation. My Old Testament is about 1,200 pages long. Over 300 pages, roughly 28% of the Old Testament is written by prophets. That's a lot. When you consider there's history in there, there's worship instruction, 28% of the Old Testament is written by prophets who are constantly talking about justice. So what I want to do is I want to give you a survey and kind of like what is a prophet? Because when we hear that word, sometimes we think of like prophet has to do with like some supernaturally predicting the future. Supernaturally, like looking and going, oh, this is going to happen, and then it happens. Whoa, I'm a prophet. There's definitely a supernatural component to prophecy, but there's actually something that's much more pragmatic and much more biblical and theological. So I'm just going to kind of list it out for you. Uh, first off, a prophet, uh, the, the, the Hebrew word is navi, and navi simply means spokesperson or mouthpiece. And if you just understood that, you would understood basically what a prophet is. They are God's spokesperson, God's mouthpiece. Now, uh, the way that works is that um, the priests of, of uh, God's people, uh, they are sort of the people's spokesperson to God. So what a priest does, even now, uh, a priest represents and speaks to God for the people. Listen, God, I know these people are crazy, but you, know, you probably don't want to annihilate all of them. Um, you know, they're okay, you know? A prophet is the opposite. A prophet speaks to the people for God. They're God's mouthpiece, God's voice. And it's associated in the Old Testament with um, the word ruach, which means spirit, the spirit of God. So if you read the prophetic books, the, the, the um, over 300 pages of prophecy in the Old Testament, you'll see words like, oh, the Spirit of God came upon Jeremiah. The Spirit of God came upon Isaiah. And so when the Spirit of God, when the Ruach of God shows up, all of a sudden prophets tend to see what's wrong with the world. They see issues that they didn't see before. And then they talk to people from God's point of view about it. 
The Ruach of God opens eyes and they go, oh my gosh, God's not happy about this. And because of that, uh, when you read the prophets, it's not typically good news. It's not. Like when the prophet shows up, you're like, oh great, the prophet's here. He's probably going to tell us the weather's going to be 73 degrees. Oh, it's sunny all week. And they're like, no. The prophet tends to show up and they're like, the spirit has come. God sees things and you need to hear about it. And they speak to kings and they speak to all the leaders and they just say, this is what God says about what's going on. Um, they're also very much about sort of performance art or what I call an embodied message. It's not just in the, in the Old Testament and even now, God is so concerned that he, about these issues and he wants people to grasp onto him so deeply that he'll tell the prophet, you have to live this message in a particular way. And they're usually not very pleasant. But he's like, they've got to see that something is wrong. So, so I want you to live your life and make decisions that are gonna be like, people are gonna be like, oh my gosh, like why have you, literally, I'm not making this up. Why have you like smeared uh, like human waste all over yourself? And it's because like God's like, these are so important that you have to shock people into waking up. So it's performance art or an embodied message. Now, just so you, just so some examples uh, of biblical prophets. They start with Moses. Moses is a prophet. He hears God's voice and he leads his people. He's considered like the prophet, the first prophet and, and usually the greatest. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Jonah, Amos, Micah, Hosea, on and on and on. Um, I'm gonna read a couple uh, statements uh, from two prophets. Uh, one we, we heard in today's central text, but um, the, I wanna read a, a passage that's very similar to what we read from Micah. It's from a guy named Amos. Amos is a shepherd. That's the other thing about prophets is like, they're not the elite. They're just people that the spirit of God comes to. They're not priests. They're not kings. They're not the leaders. Amos is a shepherd and he's told to go to the kings of Israel, the leaders of Israel, a very affluent kingdom and start talking about what he's seeing. And so Amos uh, shows up in uh, chapter five, and he says, doom to those who desire the day of the Lord. Now the day of the Lord was like the day that all, like Jewish people are like, God's gonna show up and make everything right. Like God's gonna show up and he's just gonna, the day of the Lord is when God makes everything right in the world. And Amos is like, if you think you should want that, think again. Because when God comes, he may not be very happy with you. So Amos is like doomed to you. If you think you want that day, it's darkness, not light. And he's like shocking people. And then down in verse 21, listen, he says, I hate, this is God speaking. I hate, I reject your festivals. I don't enjoy your joyous assemblies. He's talking about worship. And God says, listen, it's in the text. God says, I hate it. I, I don't want to hear your cool hill songs. I don't want to hear your, your joyous assemblies. If you bring me your entirely burned offerings, which is another way they worshiped God, if you bring those to me and you give some food, I will not be pleased. I won't even look at your offerings. Take away the noise of your songs 
I won't listen to the melody of your harps, but let what? Justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Like you can't parse that any way that says God's not saying, listen, don't come into church on a Sunday and sing a bunch of songs and then go out and be a people of cruelty or a people of rejecting people. Like it doesn't work that way. God says, I don't want to hear it. I want to see justice roll and I want to see right living and righteousness flow like a stream. Now, Micah, another prophet, um, Micah puts it slightly differently uh, in chapter six. Uh, he says, what, uh, what should I approach? With what should I approach the Lord? So this is Micah speaking. How should I approach the Lord and bow down before God on high? How should I come into worship? How should I encounter Lord, the Lord? Should I come before him with entirely burned offerings, with year-old calves? Which again, that's the way they worship. Should I come before God just with the way that I worship, the way I'm told to come? Will the Lord be pleased? And then Micah starts to exaggerate. Should I come with a thousand rams and gallons of oil? Which is never told, no one's ever told to do that in the Old Testament. So Micah is just exaggerating. God, if, if, if you want one offering, what if I give you a thousand? What if I give you gallons of oil? How about that, God? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? And then he says, oh, then he goes way over the top. Should I give my oldest child for my crime? God, what if I make a human sacrifice to you? Which God says, no, never. And so Micah is like, well, what do I have to do, God? What if I did this? And what if I did this? And what if I did all these extreme things? Um, and then he just kind of says, he's told you, human one, what is good and what the Lord requires from you? Do justice. Embrace faithful love. Some translations would say, love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Like there's no, there's no coming in on a Sunday and singing and then neglecting these issues of God. He's like, it just doesn't work that way. And don't think if you just sing louder that God's like, oh, I'll give you a pass from Monday through Saturday. So if we return back to the definition of justice that we've been looking at, you know, fair and uh, upholding fair and right behavior, it has to be impartial. It has to be for everybody. What the prophets would add to that definition is like, listen, um, it has to be particularly focused on behalf of the poor and the marginalized. That's what Isaiah 58 says. Listen, you cannot live this life and neglect justice for the least of these, for the most vulnerable people in our society. You can't. Else it's not justice. Because justice is fair for everyone. Um, now something interesting happens with the prophets. Remember, first of all, the prophet, uh, they receive the spirit, the ruach of God. And that's what allows them to speak and to see things and, and to basically have the courage to pronounce things to these powerful people. Well, the last book of the Old Testament, oh, Sunday school time. What's the last book of the Old Testament? Malachi, Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. He's the last prophet. He's considered the last prophet. And then guess what happens? Prophecy stops in God's people for 600 years. 
There are no prophets. It stops. The Ruach does not come or people do not hear the Ruach until a guy named John the Baptist in the New Testament. And John the Baptist shows up and man, he is a prophet. He's got wild hair. He dresses crazy and he's telling people, listen, you got to change your way of living. At one point he looks at somebody and says, listen, if you got two coats, you better give one away because you got one too many. And Jesus Christ is also a prophet. Like we think of Jesus as just the guy that gets us to heaven. He's our savior. He's our Lord. He's our rabbi. He's our teacher. He's also a prophet. He has the Ruach, the Spirit of God in him. Jesus spends an awful lot of time around poor people. Jesus is a poor person. Wrap your head around that. His dad is out of the picture. He is from a single parent household. He is not a priest. He is not part of the elite. He has no political power. He is a poor rabbi that just happens to have the Ruach of God and he sees everything. And in case you're wondering, take Luke 4. Jesus starts his ministry uh, in Luke's story of Jesus. The first thing that Jesus does after he comes back from the wilderness is he goes to the synagogue. He takes open a scroll and it's open to a prophet, Isaiah. And Jesus just looks at the scroll and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He's given me the Ruach and he has sent me to preach good news to who? He said, he sent me to proclaim release for who? Recovery of sight for who? Liberating who? And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus says, listen, it's fulfilled right here. And it's really tempting to go, oh, but Jesus was just speaking spiritually. Like Jesus just means like metaphorically he frees people. Except that's what, Jesus goes around giving sight to people, literally. I like think of like, think about a blind guy. Like Jesus, what if he, Jesus went up to a blind guy and said, hey, I want to restore your sight, but only metaphorically. So what Jesus does, these are real behaviors to him because God's a God of real justice. And Jesus is a savior and a Messiah and a prophet of real justice. So where does that leave us? Um, this is what's really interesting to me. So Jesus comes and, and he, uh, he kind of falls into line with, with the prophets and then he's crucified and uh, he, he rises from the dead in the resurrection. And before he leaves, he tells his followers, hey, listen, um, stay put in Jerusalem because something's going to happen. And don't leave. Don't leave. Jesus has already said, I, I wanted you to go make disciples of everywhere. But he says, don't go just yet because you, got to, you have to get something first. So what is it that's given uh, if you flip to, to Acts chapter 2, I got to tell you, this kind of just opened my eyes. I had a moment this week um, of just learning. So before we go there, remember, the prophet receives the Ruach, the Spirit of God, which allows them to see injustice, to see things from God's point of view. Acts 2. There's a Jewish holiday called Pentecost. When Pentecost Day arrived, 
They were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound from heaven, like the howling of a fierce wind, filled the entire house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be individual flames of fire alighting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The Ruach of God. A couple verses later, Peter, who is the early leader of the church, stood with the uh, other 11 apostles and he raised his voice and declared, hey, Judeans and everyone living in Jerusalem, know this, listen carefully to my words. These people aren't drunk because they're kind of acting weird. They're not drunk as you suspect. After all, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. It's the 11 a.m. gathering that gets drunk. Rather, <laughs> it says, rather, this is what was spoken about through the prophet Joel. Listen, in the last days, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit, my Ruach on who? All people and your sons and daughters will prophesy. And so the way I would say it for us today is that in that act, now we could all, we should all be able to see the injustice and the brokenness in the world and we should be able to know what God says about it because we all now have the Ruach. It's given to who? All people. God says, guess what? Now you're all prophets. Now you can all see and now you can all name it and go, that's wrong. That's wrong. It's not just a select group of people. Guess what? If you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you can be a prophet. The Ruach has been given to you. We talked about God's right hand and the strong right hand and, and the right hand that says, listen, I'm going to uh, break down kingdoms and I'm going to punish people. But guess what? In the rabbinical tradition, God has a left hand too. And literally the left hand of God is his compassion. And we want to think that God, which is it? And we have people, let's be honest, like all of us in this room, you're going to lean one way or the other. You're going to lean towards punishment or you're going to lean towards compassion. The Bible says God is ambidextrous. It is neither just the right hand or the left hand. It is a perfect blend of God saying, yes, things are right and things are wrong. There are some things that just should not happen. However, compassion matters. And you do not have to choose. It doesn't mean it's not complicated. But we do not get to say, well, it's only punishment. And we don't get to say, it's only compassion. Anything goes. God says there are rules. But you can't lose sight of compassion. That's what Jesus lived out. Jesus didn't have a problem telling people when they were off base but I believe Jesus, like if I sat down to dinner with Jesus, he could simultaneously tell me everything that was wrong with my life and I would never feel shame just because of who he was. So I want to spend this the last couple minutes talking about how this plays itself out in a very particular way. I want to introduce you to the, the name of a guy named Brian Stevenson. Um, he was at the Global Leadership Summit 2017. Some of us saw him speak and it was amazing. He's the leader of something called the Equal Justice Initiative. He has a TED Talk that is one of the top, uh, I believe top three, top five most popular TED Talks ever. 
13 million is what I saw Friday. He's a lawyer and he works on issues of justice related to the death penalty and incarceration. And this is one of these things. Look, what does God's justice look like? What is biblical justice? It's got to be fair. It's got to be impartial. And it's got to address poor people and marginalized people. And just watching his talk and, and listening to some statistics, they were really troubling to me. And I'm just going to lay them out and they might be troubling to you too. But I don't come here to just have an echo chamber. I don't read the text to have an echo chamber. So here it is. Let's start off with this idea. We have in the United States the highest rate of incarceration in the world. The highest rate of incarceration in the world. And I would ask us as a people, as a nation, how, you, how does that sit with you? I don't want to be known as a prison state. Even more troubling is um, the idea that in the last 30 years, the crime rate in this country has gone up and gone down, gone up and gone down. It has fluctuated. You know what has not fluctuated? The increasing rate of incarceration of adult black folks. So again, the crime rate has gone up and down and up and down for 30 years but over that same 30-year period, the rate of adult black people who are incarcerated in this country has quintupled. Quintupled. Now, he also says this. Um, studies show that in the criminal justice system, and I, I am not at all proposing that there aren't people out there who are working very hard to be very fair, but there's something not right in our system and we have to name it. And if it's wrong anywhere, God says, you have to all be part of this. So he also says, listen, there's a phenomenon that he finds wealth and not culpability determines the outcome of sentencing. Wealth and not culpability determines how you get sentenced. As a white man, and knowing, listen, I hope it's not shocking, I have had some run-ins with the police in my past, not like last week. <laughs> and knowing that if the color of my skin had been different, I have to admit the fact that, that my story could be utterly different now. I was uh, not only white, but I'm also affluent. I was from a middle-class home. Wealth, not culpability, is a powerful determinant especially in sentencing. This is an issue of justice. And, and quite frankly, uh, this is something where we go, listen, I know it's not simple. It's complicated. We get it. But we also have to be willing to name it. And uh, when you talk about justice, and, and I want to just kind of uh, ask you this. Because part of us are like, listen, if we lean on the right hand, we're going, but yeah, but they made choices. They did things that were bad. And we also can't just say, you know, for that matter, well, anything goes. But he asked something, Brian Stevenson asked something in his TED Talk, and I want to ask you guys. I want you to think for a second, what's the worst thing you've ever done? Think about it. What is the worst thing you've ever done? Maybe you've told somebody, maybe you haven't. How would you like to be known by that thing for the rest of your life? How would you like to be defined by the thing that's the worst thing you've ever done and say, that's your identity, 
welcome to the rest of your life. You see, like if, 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 if we were being honest, you could say, oh, you know, well, I could start with saying I'm Pastor Eric, right? But if you started digging in my life, you would start to see that I've got flaws and I've got flaws and I've got flaws and I've got flaws. And pretty soon you would hit bedrock of the worst thing I've ever done. But guess what? My God says that there's a new, another reality to who I am. I am so that I'm beloved. I'm loved by God. So I don't have to be defined by the worst thing I've ever done because my identity is one who is loved by God. And that to me is the balance of right hand and left hand. I do not have to be defined. And yet we tend to define whole segments of our population by the worst thing they've ever done. And we have to be willing to say there's a human being under there that we can embrace and identify with. There's a, uh, there's a brilliant line that the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth. And he's talking about disagreements about an issue actually related to, to food, which was a really big deal in the early church. And, and he's like, listen, you're disagreeing about that and you're disagreeing about that. And you people are kind of like, you're like refusing to be engaged in this. And he said, guess what? You should never treat somebody bad who Jesus Christ died for. And Jesus Christ in my Bible, my Bible, died for the whole world. So there's not a person on this planet that he has not died for. And you're just like them. And so for me, justice is really just about saying, how can we name it, something be broken, say we want to get better at it, and then just figure out a way to make a difference if nothing else saying, these are still human beings. They're people. 